Welcome to the Midweek Bible Study with Ben Schaefer, the podcast where we dive deep into the timeless wisdom of Scripture, one verse at a time. I'm your host, Ben Schaefer, and I'm thrilled to have you join on our journey through the pages of the Bible. We are currently studying the fifth book in the New Testament called The Acts of the Apostles. So grab your Bible, something to write with, and let's get started. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to once again have the privilege of meeting together with brothers and sisters in Christ, our family of God, the family that's forever. Uh, Not only just to gather and fellowship, but to have a purpose around the fellowship, which is your word, to look into your word, the eternal word. It says in scripture that heaven and earth will pass away, but your word will last forever. So Lord, I think it's probably worth our time and effort to study what it has to say, specifically in our book of Acts, in the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, as we call it. I pray that we would understand this with spiritual ears today, and that something that I say would just, would just, trigger a Holy Spirit illumination inside of someone who's listening to this right now and a new area in their spiritual walk, their faith walk with Christ. Thank you, God, for moving in this place and being present with us. We know that wherever two are gathered, there you are also. And we ask for a blessing over our time. In Jesus' name, all of God's children said, amen. Amen. All right, everybody, I'm going to try, if anybody uh, is is, uh, curious about um, the the uh, where to find resources. Uh, I want to make sure to mention our podcast is up on on the uh, relevantcommunity.org site. Um, there's there's a great resource page there under the midweek Bible study. So let's go ahead and jump right into the Book of Acts. We're we are so into it now, guys. We got the introduction out of the way last last week. If you join me in session number one, this was an incredible view of. What happened in the first first uh, section of Luke's narrative in the book of Acts, the second work of Luke's? We remember that Luke penned the book Luke, the Gospel of Luke, but he also penned the book of Acts. Well, we, ch- we covered chapter one, which many people call the introduction. Well, that's exactly what we are going to dive into today, the next section, which I'm calling Acts 2a. And again, you guys got the references over here? So make sure you check those out as we go. I'm going to ask some of you to to read uh, out loud. But this chapter of Acts, guys, is one of the most famous chapters of the New Testament. This is not to be belittled. This is not just one of those, oh, yeah, I've heard about this thing, and and check out on me. Don't check out wherever you're at. If you're listening right now at work, wherever you're at in your car, if you're here in this room, I invite you to engage for the next 55 minutes as to what this piece of scripture is telling us today. Remember last week, we talked about finding out more about context to to really learn what the original audience is thinking and and seeing in this first first iteration of this letter. Then to be able to make a theological reflection to today's application is the goal at hand. So, Justifiably so, 
this chapter two, the first half, which we're going to be covering verse one through 13, is, is it, it, for this chapter, we see the birth of the church. This is the beginning of the church. There are two primary events split up into four sections. So if you guys are, are taking notes here, there's, there's a section, uh, there's, there's two things that happen that lead to two events or consequences, if you will. So the number one thing is the arrival of the Holy Spirit. Crazy. The second thing is a sermon we're going to look at from Peter. Okay. Well, those two have these consequences to each item. So number one, there was a consequence. I'll just use the word consequences, outcome of the arrival of the Holy Spirit. So what we want to do is track this as we're looking at this piece of scripture. What is the outcome? Is the manifestation of the Spirit among the body of believers. And I'm not going to write all that out, but the Holy Spirit among believers. All right, what's the outcome of Peter's sermon? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> That's exactly what we're going to figure out. So everybody had a little something to say. Something crazy happened after Peter decided to preach, perhaps for the first time. Okay? So as we said last week, Acts is a book of transitions. It's a book, it's an arc that goes from God's city to man's city. It's not a book of doctrine. It's not a book of theology. Contrary to popular belief, this is not even a book necessarily all about church practice. I want you guys to give a clear-eyed view of what this book is talking about and kind of let go of all those preconceived notions that you possibly have. And the events of chapter 2 in particular are extraordinary. I mean, we're going to be looking at some stuff that's going to push your envelope of like what exactly you think that God can do and what he can't do. The first of these events is the arrival of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Does anybody know who the Holy Spirit is? Have you ever seen him? No, I, I bet you haven't. Have you ever tasted him? Have you ever touched him? Have you ever seen any part of the Holy Spirit? I'm telling you, you probably haven't because of one word, spirit. <laughs> he is a spirit. Um, Jesus was incarnate, God. The Holy Spirit was not an incarnate human being. He is a spirit promised by the incarnate God, Jesus. Promised to us. Remember last, uh, last week we heard Jesus say, hey, I'm going to leave, but I'm going to bring somebody, somebody else 50 days later is coming, and that is the Holy Spirit. So let's get it into the Word real quick. Here we go. Acts 2, verses 1 through 4. Somebody shout it out. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound of a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues of fire, uh, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. 
And they were all, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Okie dokie. Well, Luke opens with a very telling phrase. What is it? You guys see a phrase, by the way, this is a really important thing to do when you're reading scripture. Record and note phrases that pop out, that pop out. That's all I'll have to say. The Holy Spirit will pop phrases. What I like to do is write those out and come back to them later. But let me ask, what phrase really pops out on that ver that very first verse do you guys think? The day of Pentecost. What does that mean to you guys? Probably not a lot, right? Us Gentile Americans, we're probably thinking to ourselves, oh yeah, Pentecost, that's that one little, uh, what is that again? <laughs> Maybe if you're from a Pentecostal church, you know that it's important. Something happened at Pentecost. Maybe if you're, you've heard it in church circles or Christian Christianese, you know that it's important. Well, today, Congratulations, we're going to figure out exactly, I'm going to tell you exactly what, it's, what it is. When the day of Pentecost has come, this is what he said. Do you know what this phrase literally means in the Greek? When, when Luke penned this phrase, this is what he said. Had come, or literally fulfilled. Meaning, when the day of Pentecost has been fulfilled. So, wait, Luke is saying that the day of Pentecost has been fulfilled when the Holy Spirit came. What's going on right there? So, Luke begins with the day of Pentecost being fulfilled completely. So, evidently, we better seriously figure out what Pentecost is. Luke is saying more than you might assume. The day of Pentecost is actually a Jewish feast called the Feast of Weeks. Guys, I love Jewish tradition. I love Jewish culture. I've read about it. I've studied it. I love it. There's a reason because it's all, <laughs> it's the lineage of Christ. And if you study Jewish Judaism, you're going to find a lot of things that illuminate the Old Testament. But it's also going to illuminate if you're a believer, a new covenant believer, you're going to illuminate Christ. It's amazing. One of those things is the Feast of Weeks. Or some some call it first fruits feast. It was established in Exodus 34. If you guys want to go check that out. And then again in Numbers 28, God said to observe a feast 50 days after Passover. What's Passover? Passover is what we call Easter. Passover. Wow. Hellenistic Jews gave it the title Pentecost, this 50-day uh, post celebration called the, the Feast of Weeks. The, the Hellenistic Jews, the Greek-speaking Jews, gave it this title Pentecost, which means what? 50th day. Penta. Pentecost. So the feast commemorated the day the nation of Israel received the law at Mount Sinai, or the mountain of God. Interesting, right? That 50 days after the Israelites were set free from bondage, God gave the law to this special little group of slaves. Luke prefaces his description of the arrival of the Holy Spirit in chapter 2 by announcing that the day of Pentecost was fulfilled completely 
by the events that we're going to read about. What? So what's happening? Like, why would this be fulfilling anything that happened on Mount Sinai? Freedom from bondage. That's, uh, yeah. There's so many correlations. There's, there's incredible nuances that nobody's even, maybe even shown you, maybe you've never even seen before as a believer, of what Jesus was doing when he gave us the Holy Spirit. This feast is way more than a feast. Uh, it's, it's literally, we got to look at the parallels between the events of Exodus and the events of Acts 2. We see, to, for us to be able to see what Luke is saying. Because I'm going to guess that you guys don't celebrate Feast of Weeks in your household. Uh, there, <laughs> there's probably not a lot of talk about that to your children about how you received the God's people, received the law 50 days after Pharaoh sent them down the desert. They walked through the sea on dry land. You probably don't remind them of that. Maybe once in a while when you watch, you know, a cartoon that uh, is, uh, what's it? Uh, yeah, Prince of Egypt. Yes, you might watch a cartoon or a movie or watch, watch Exodus or something. But it's not really something we grow up learning. Well, if you're a Jew, a Hellenistic Jew, doesn't matter, you're going to know this. And when Luke says the day of Pentecost is fulfilled, he's drawing a line in the sand saying some pretty provocative stuff. So if we look at the parallels, we're going to know what Luke is saying. So let's do it. In Exodus, the day of Pentecost followed 50 days after Passover. Remember what Passover is? Passover is the, the moment where uh, in Exodus, God's people were set free from slavery and saved from death by the sacrifice of a spotless lamb. And the blood of that lamb was their covering. Remember, you take the hyssop branch and you put it over your doorposts, ringing a bell. If you're a new believer, I'm sorry. <laughs> this is from pretty deep Old Testament stuff. In Exodus, this is all described. It's an amazing story. It's way better than Lord of the Rings. <laughs> then 50 days later, after the Passover, when the angel of death would pass over the household and, and see the, the blood applied to the, the, the doorposts, covering of the spotless lamb, he would pass over. 50 days after that, God's people were alone in the desert, fearful waiting for God to direct them. Give them a sign. I just have to ask the question real quick. You ever been there? You did exactly what God told you to do, and now you're alone. At that point, God gave his people something very special. The law. First time ever. The law was written on a what? A stone. And the law was their guide to being rich? <laughs> no. Their guide to righteous living, God would call it. Rightness. According to what God required. And the giving of that law was accompanied by great signs and wonders. Hmm and a miraculous 
event or two. Now, moving to the book of Acts, let's take a look. The day of Pentecost followed 50 days after Easter. Sound familiar? Exactly 50 days, guys. This wasn't like an hour off. God doesn't do that. It's exact. And Luke is pointing this out to us today. Easter, reminding you guys, is the day that the Passover celebration was completely fulfilled. You see that? So Exodus, all of Exodus stuff, Acts 2 stuff, <laughs> Acts 1 through 2, happened, foreshadowed, fulfilled. Every single bit of it. So at this point, uh, the Passover of the Old Testament was merely just a little picture, a shadow of the greater fulfillment found in Christ's sacrifice on the cross. The blood, the hyssop. This was the day when God set all his children free from the slavery of sin and death by the sacrifice of his sinless son, a.k.a. the Lamb of God. You know, in Revelation, they don't even name him Jesus. They name him the Lamb. Our sins are covered by this Lamb's blood, the blood of a perfect Lamb. Then, boom, 50 days exactly later, God's people are alone. Remember the disciples staring up in the sky last week? Going, Okie dokie. Now what? We're alone. We're scared. We're going to get murdered. Let's go back to the upper room and, and wait, like he said. So the giving of, at that point, God sends his Holy Spirit to men. So get this, that the law may be written on something other than stone. Their hearts. And the giving of the Spirit became the means of righteous living. It's not on a rock anymore. It's right here. I'm not a heart surgeon, so I don't really know where the heart is. It's maybe like right here. <laughs> but now the law is written on you and I's hearts. And the giving of the Spirit is accompanied by, yet again, great signs and wonders. And the signs. And events are miraculous. Kind of hard to explain. So, guys, I want you to really capture the lesser to greater relationship. Remember, Acts is all about that. Luke, Luke's literary uh, tool is lesser to greater. Uh, I'm sorry, from an arc, from the, uh, it's a narrative. It's like a travel journal. It's I'm going from here to here. Well, here is exactly what's happening. Lesser to greater. Uh, foreshadow, fulfilled. Now, check this out. There is a general pattern you will find in all the feasts of Israel. Do you guys know any other feasts, names? Have you heard, heard of the, any of these feasts? The Feast of Booths? Have you ever heard of that? Yeah, the Feast of Trumpets. All of these are foreshadows. They foreshadow a coming event. Well, the earlier is a shadow of the later, greater fulfillment. The first points to the second, and the second event 
was the one in view from the beginning. See, I think we get at this a lot. A lot of us get this mixed up. We put all the onus on the first to the point where we miss the second. That's what happened to Jesus. So here, Luke says we are seeing the true fulfillment of the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. So we better, like, maybe pay attention to what this is going to, what he's about ready to say. At this moment, all the disciples are still together, probably in the upper room. There's no reason to not believe that because it says house in verse two. They weren't in a synagogue. Then a miraculous, unique manifestation took place. First, first, there was a sound of rushing wind. Hold on for a second. You see anything weird about that? <laughs> what stands out? Anything? Sound of rushing wind. Wait, that's exactly what it says. It's not a rushing wind. It's the sound of a rushing wind. That's an interesting, tantalizing piece of information for a second. Think about that. What if I all of a sudden just turned up a big speaker with the sound of wind, but you didn't feel anything on your face? You'd be asking yourself, wow, that's interesting. That's, that's hard to ignore. Think about that for a second. Out of nowhere, there's no PA speakers. There's no, <laughs> there's no, there's no phones you know, with alarms going off. These men are sitting there. And all of a sudden, with no wind on their face. First, that was their first indicator. Notice that the text does not say it's blowing their faces. The people in the room aren't thrown around. They're not knocked over by the wind. But <laughs> it's only the sound of the wind that they hear. The wind is a common picture of the movement and the work of the Holy Spirit in Scripture. You guys know that? Most clearly seen in John 3.8. Somebody read that real quick. John 3.8. This is a really cool passage. My grandpa shared this with me in the later years of his life, and it really... Yeah, right, 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 right. John 3.8. Somebody read that, whatever translation you have. Wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Born of the Spirit. Huh. So we got to pay attention. And to, an, uh, to these men in this room, when you hear the sound of wind, you got my attention. Secondly, let's look at what happened second. There are tongues of fire that appeared to distribute themselves among the people in the room, one tongue of flame per person. In the Greek, the description is very, very particular for tongues of fire. A cluster of licking flames <laughs> appears and then seems to separate apart. So picture this big fireball literally appearing in the middle of the room and then separating into flickering tongues of fire. And each flickering flame moves towards a different person and rests upon their head. Here, again, we have to look at the symbol. What is going on with the fire? What is fire associated in Scripture? We see that it's 
associated with the Holy Spirit in certain places. Christ himself makes this comparison in Luke 3.16. I'll go ahead and read it. It says this, John answered and said to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water, but John the Baptist, that is, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals, but he, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So the arrival of the tongues of fire demonstrate the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in each believer in that room. And the indwelling was made visible, evident by the fire. Very unique, very peculiar, never has happened before. What's happening? Making clear that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the baptism of the Holy Spirit or the baptism of fire mentioned by John. There is a synonymous term in, these are synonymous terms in the Bible. So, new, so next, Luke says that these men were, quote, filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled by him, filled up. The, this is different experience than the indwelling of the Spirit, which occurred in verse 2. The word filled implies control. This isn't just like, ooh, I feel funny. Do you see this language? That's a very important piece of information. Paul teaches about this in Ephesians 5:18. I want you to go. Put a pin in that, write that down, go read it later on. So after, that's Ephesians 5.18. The difference between indwelling, uh, the difference, it's a different experience than the indwelling of the Spirit, which occurred in verse 2. And if you want to know what the the word filled implies, it means controlled, as Paul teaches in 5.18. So after the indwelling, these men become controlled by the Holy Spirit. What? So what's Luke talking about? So now the men under the control of the Spirit spontaneously begin speaking in languages they didn't know moments earlier. I'm just telling you what it says. Men don't do that. Women don't do that. People don't do that. English, Spanish, Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek. This is what it means when it says tongues. When the Bible uses the word tongues to describe language, it's referring to normal, understandable, human, not angel, human languages. In this context, this is what this means. It does not mean babbling nonsense words. I'm not trying to make anybody mad. (laughs) I'm just telling you what it means. It doesn't even necessarily mean a dead or unknown language that has been wiped off the face of the earth by a dead civilization. Nope. It means speaking a real, knowable language that the speaker didn't know how to speak before. Okay? So the miracle is found in this simple fact. None other. Guys, don't overlook this. What? Why? What? 
suddenly able to speak a language they've never been able to speak before? So what's the significance of speaking in a foreign language in this most important moment of the New Testament? Perhaps one of the most important besides the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. What is going on? Why did God choose to use this strange, weird manifestation to mark the indwelling of the Spirit of the fulfilling of Pentecost, the day of Pentecost? Consider the origin of multiple languages. Where am I going to go? The Tower of Babel, right? When men were rebelling at the Tower of Babel, they were seeking a way to unite themselves in the power of the flesh. It's just what we do, right? They were trying to reach God. They were trying to be like Shem. They wanted to be the special people, according to Genesis. But they were doing it in the sin of their flesh. So God frustrated their efforts, it says, by confusing the language and scattering them. Now God is producing the opposite effect. You see that? The ark. So, yes, these people are not understanding at the Tower of Babel. Now they're understanding the specific people. Check this out. Now, God is producing something different. He is uniting a group of men who had previously spoken a different tongue. Now they speaking in tongues they didn't know previously, and suddenly language wasn't a barrier anymore, at least for this moment. Guys, do you remember what's going on in Pentecost? What's happening? This place they were at was like the busiest mall you've ever been in. It wasn't some desolate backcountry Nazareth. This was people from everywhere. They're just looking for a flat place to, to sleep through the feast. Literally, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation were smashed into this little little bitty, you know, Jerusalem's not real huge. So it's not like there were, there were just, they were physically alone in the room. They were not physically alone in the city. So we have people from all over the world. So they were striving to unite themselves in the flesh. Well, what were these disciples doing? They were not. So before we move to the next section, we have, to, we have to say that he brought this unmistakable message that this moment is a time of reconciliation, not division. That's the point. It's supposed to make the reader go, oh, he's taking us back. He's, he's, he's taking us back to Babel, but he's, he's doing the opposite. You see that? So before we move into the next section, let's stop and ask ourselves this obvious question. Why did these events accompany the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? And why did they happen? Why don't they happen to all believers? Am I the only one asking this question? Why are they happening? Why is that not happening to you? You know, we just had a couple of people come to Christ over at church. We got baptized. If I would go to ask them, hey, do you know how to speak Greek now? They would say no. <laughs> you, you, you're able to speak in any foreign languages? No. The answer is no. So what's happening? First, all believers do share in the key event of this moment. Jesus and the apostles all taught 
that all believers receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit as a result of coming to faith in the gospel, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. At the moment of you placing your faith in Jesus Christ, you're indwelt, filled, the Holy Spirit. And the baptism ushers us into the family of God. It doesn't save you. It inaugurates you. I'm a part of the family. But we also know that by, the, by and large, Christians don't particularly experience miraculous manifestations like those described in this chapter here when we believe. Am I wrong? Raise your hand if this has happened to you. I, don't, I, I haven't had this happen to me. We don't hear the sound of violent rushing winds. We don't see tongues and fire arriving and diving into our bodies. Hmm. We don't find ourselves fa falling under control of the spirit and our mouths begin to speak in foreign languages. So the question is, why, do God, why did God find it necessary to bring this kind of manifestation to Pentecost? Where am I going with this? Well, place yourself as an observer in the upper room for a second. As the spirit arrived. Remember, you have no understanding of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in this new age. You have no clue who the Holy Spirit is. Try to remember that you would have to know, have no idea what to expect or even what event is coming. Then you see these miraculous and powerful displays, okay? You hear a powerful wind, but you don't feel any breeze. You see fireballs in the middle of the room, and then the fire breaks apart and divides themselves into each over each person in the room, but the fire doesn't burn them. It just appears to go into each person. Finally, the body begins to do things on its own, including speaking in foreign languages. Whew. As you watch this happening, what do you conclude? It's a miracle. Okay. There's been a change. It's an interesting thing to think about. Would you, nobody would be, nobody in the room would be a little cynical right now or like looking for the door? Okay, yeah, thank you. Thanks for being honest, Justin. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> I would like to think that I'd be like, come, Holy Spirit. But I have to be honest, I'd be looking for the door. But what do you conclude? Well, I would conclude something is happening, <laughs> obviously. And God has entered each person and has be, began to control their behavior. But is it demonic? Mm. You see? Now pretend the first indwelling of the Holy Spirit had arrived in the same way that he comes to us today. That is to say, what if the Holy Spirit had arrived silently? Hmm? Would we be talking about this? nobody's really seeing anything. They're just, mm, I think I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I think I am. All right, guys, let's go. Story's over. No. What if the only effect of the Spirit's arrival had been the fruit of that he produced in believers' lives over the course of 30, 40 years? Simply put, you would, not, you would have never known it even happened at least not for some time. And there would seriously likely still be Christians today arguing whether the indwelling of the Spirit is even possible, much less universal. Do you see what I'm saying? You see what I'm saying? Think about this. 
God desired to make his presence in the lives of these believers clearly evident in this specific moment, in that specific day. But it's equally obvious that God didn't intend to continue these manifestations for all believers universally after he had made his oh-so-potent point. Signs like these served their purpose in their day. Once the point was made, though, it doesn't require God to make that same point over and over again. Finally, when we understand the significance of this moment in the history of God's dealing with men, we can put the entire scene into perspective. Pentecost was a pivotal moment when God sent his spirit to permanently indwell all of his children. Prior to this moment, the spirit only chose to indwell some men. Sometimes for only a short time. Do you guys see all the times in the Old Testament when a man was filled with the Holy Spirit? That was temporary. Seriously strange. But this is permanent. It wasn't used as a universal mark of faith prior to Jesus. So now in Acts 2, God ushers in a new dispensation. Oh, there's a big word. A dispensation in God's administration, I call it, in something called mankind. He is the admin. He's the CEO. He controls it. He's the boss. By the way. All of God's children would receive something previously reserved for only just a few, usually actually just a priest or prophets or kings. Now you have access, he says in Acts 2. And he wanted to punctuate that point because that's a big deal. So the indwelling would be a permanent gift intended to do what? This is important. Sanctification. So this is a very interesting thing to think about. Let me mention this third point. This indwelling would unite men, there it is, and women, through a common spirit and a purpose as the bride of Christ in a church age, we call. So everybody on this Zoom call, everybody in this room, if you are a believing, placed your faith in Christ, human being, today, we got something in common, y'all. We're indwelt by a righteous, perfect spirit named the Holy Spirit. And Luke is talking about the character and the purpose behind that spirit in this passage. So unfortunately, I don't know if you like me. I don't know if you think I'm ugly. I'm your brother in Christ because we both share the same spirit. I'll see you guys in heaven. So fourth, it brought access to supernatural power. We can't overlook this through spiritual gifts previously available only to a few chosen. Fifth, for the first time, we see God's spirit reach out to Gentiles and unite them with the Jews. So it's the work of the Holy Spirit. And then finally, we, what do we see? The arrival of the Spirit opened 
the door for the preaching of the gospel to the entire known world in this moment. With all these purposes being accomplished in this one specific moment, should we be surprised that God would treat this moment in a very special way, showing himself in a very peculiar and unique way? I think not. Now, likewise, once the president precedent has been established, president, should, be, should we expect him to repeat this experience every time another person is ushered into the family of God? I hope you're thinking no. For example, the nation of Israel saw miraculous displays when God, God delivered the word of God to them on the rock, on the mountain, wrote the law on the rock. There is fire. There was thunder, smoke. But did God repeat those miraculous displays every time another child was born into Israel and received the instructions of the law? No. It was like in the quiet of their house. The father would go, here, son, let me start with number one. Love your Lord, your God, with all your heart and soul and mind. And then obey your parents. <laughs> Skip to number three or whatever, four. Yeah, there it is. That's my favorite one, yeah. So he didn't repeat that. The mountain didn't shake. The pillars of fire didn't appear every time a foreigner received circumcision and entered the assembly of Israel. Did it not? Of course it didn't. So similarly, should we expect God to repeat the first experience every time a new believer receives the Spirit and enters the body of Christ? No. There's the answer, no. And so we should seek after such displays. Should we seek after that kind of display? Should we teach that these are supposed to be happening? <laughs> or should, should we say it should be happening now because it's it happened then? Again, no. Now, when we said the chapters had four division, when I said that, so let's move we said that, so let's move to the second division, the people's response right here to what they just viewed. Who's going to be my reader? Acts 2, 5 through 13. Check this out. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Amphilia, Amphilia, Egypt and the parts of Libya, Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, Arabians. <laughs> Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, 
they are filled with new wine. <laughs> new wine. Yeah, that's it. So, guys, this section, the second section, describes the effect of this display on the spirit of the spirit upon others in the city of Jerusalem. Basically, we're talking about the 11, the 12. Now we're talking about what happened when everybody saw this. You remember me saying it's like a, a mall? They're kind of like making a lot of noise right now. Based on verse 5 through 6, here's what we can assume has happened. The group in the upper room experienced the arrival of the Spirit and then began speaking in foreign languages. Am I right? <laughs> Though we can't know exactly what they were saying, the text in verse 11 says that they were speaking of the mighty works of God. Most likely, they were declaring the saving work of God in history and the gospel, all while praising the Lord. Sounds like the perfect worship song to me. <laughs> Could we just write a song like that? As their excitement spills over, they pour out of the upper room and into the crowded streets of Jerusalem on Pentecost. All of a sudden, they're not these shy fishermen anymore, are they? Out in public now, the sound of their voices draws some attention. The Greek word for sound in verse 6 is different than the word in verse 2, indicating that it wasn't the sound of the wind that drew the crowd. Do you see that? That's an interesting thing to note. It's, it's interesting to put yourself there, too. Like in, in right now, what would, what would you be thinking? It was the sound of the men speaking in foreign languages that really got them. In the crowd were a large number of Jews and a few Gentiles convert, convert, converted Gentiles visiting from countries, it's like I was saying, outside the land of Israel. They don't know Hebrew. This was common in the day because Passover and Pentecost were both feasts that Jewish men were required to observe in Jerusalem. So Jews living in the land simply left after Passover and returned again 50 days later for Pentecost. This is what they would do. But Jews living outside the city would have to come up with some sort of housing for 50 days. So you can expect the hotel business was booming. There's entertainment. There's, there, I mean, it was like a whole touristy thing. That meant there would be a large number of foreign-speaking residents, sorry, foreigners, hanging around, specifically Jews, by the way, the city during this time. So in verse 6, we see the description of these men as they watch the disciples speaking in their native tongue. They can hear the disciples speaking in their own language. And they were bewildered because they couldn't understand how these residents of Galilee were able to speak their native tongue. They probably knew these men were Galilean either by their appearance or by their accents. Did you guys know that there's major accents in the land of Israel? You can tell exactly where anybody's from just by the way they speak Hebrew. They probably knew these men were, were like that just because of the, the, stain, the stench. <laughs> Galileans were said to have had distinct accents. It's funny how they, they kind of made fun of Galileans because of their, their drawl. Like, we, well, I'm from the South. Well, that's how they would treat Galileans, which maybe Galileans are the first original Bible belts. Oh, sorry. 
in verse 9 through 10, we see the list of countries represented and the nationalities present. Why did he include that? Well, because it's really important. Based on those countries, we know the language uh, the language is being spoken in that moment. They would have been Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, Latin, and Nabataean. This reminds us of the speaking in tongues means speaking in a real, recognizable language. Any attempt to fake this gift, y'all, I'll just put my two cents in here. Yeah, just, just you know. Anytime you try to fake this gift only results in silly gibberish that no one could understand since it's not real language. So now look at the effect this scene had on the crowd, y'all. Among the visiting Jews, it caused them to puzzle and ask questions of the meaning of the miracle. They, co- they totally recognized it. I mean, they, they were like, it's important, it's supernatural, but what does it mean? What's happening? And the second group that's noted seems to be comparing, comparing uh, to, by comparison to be local Jews who just mock the event as a bunch of drunkards. They don't ask the question because they doubt the significance of the event. Both these groups are unbelievers who are seeing this manifestation of God with some, resp- uh, with some responding with an open heart. So you got some people are going, you guys are weird, you guys are drunk, then you got uh, these other people that go, something is happening. Both these groups are unbelievers, however. Paul explained how God used this unique moment and how he displayed his power in 1 Corinthians 14.20. I'm just going to read it for time. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to the unbeliever. But prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Where did they get that? What's Paul talking about? What's he quoting? Isaiah 28.11. Check it out. Paul says this gift that's happening right here is fulfilling what Isaiah said would happen. That's That's a big deal. God told Israel they would know when God was judging them when they saw him opening the mouths of the Gentiles to speak in foreign tongues. So if you know it, if you know Isaiah, you're going to be stopped dead in your tracks and you're going to go, it's here. So here we see the beginning of that prophecy when unbelievers respond to this sign by questioning it and looking for answers. By the way, small application, when you're out sharing the gospel and you're discouraged when people reject you, remember this verse, that sometimes that's a sign. Sometimes that's supposed to be the encouragement that you have. We're always all about numbers. We're always all about growth. But look at this. The fact that some of the crowd were calling them drunkards just solidified former prophecy being fulfilled. Sometimes all this stuff happening in our life isn't necessarily all negative. 
it's fulfilling scripture. Even as people turn their backs on Jesus. So as I close to this respect to, to the receptive and the inquisitive crowd, Peter will begin to, then to stand upon a, a proverbial soapbox and preach the craziest sermon, one of the best sermons I've ever heard. And his preaching forms the final two sections of this chapter. He preaches, something really crazy happens. And I want you to come back next week so we can figure out what happened. Because it'll change a lot of the way you think. I promise as a believer, you haven't seen this yet. Maybe you have. God bless you. But I'm telling you, there are some major eye-opening experiences in store for you. If you come back next week, if you tune in, you watch this to be, uh, it is to be continued. Get it? Uh, but it's, it's acts to be. We're going to cover what Peter said and what happened. Uh, after that. So that that's what I'm going to close. It, and here's my reflection questions for you all. They're going to be posted online. So I encourage you to go to uh, the website and find those questions. And I'm going to pull those up right now. But I want to I wanted you guys to have these reflection questions every week. So you're so you're able to not just take in the the water, uh, the, the water hose of information, if you will, and uh, just think of it in purely sense of uh, intellectual. But I want you guys to be able to take this into spiritual application in your own personal walk with Christ. That's really like my main goal here. Um, and so here, the, here they are. And number one, it's this. And again, I'm sorry if I'm going to say these a little bit too fast to, to write them down, but here it is. Wherever you're at, here's your reflection questions Does my relationship with Jesus? Make room for supernatural signs and wonders. Yep, yep, they're on the website. Yeah, sorry about that. Relevantcommunity.org, and then click on Midweek Bible Study. It's on episode two. Does my relationship with Jesus make room for supernatural signs and wonders? I sure hope it does. Number two, place yourself in that room on that night. What would have been your response? Number three, what aspects of Christ's character are in view in this section of Acts? <laughs> wow, that sounds just like me. It's all right. It's all good. Number four. What application in your personal faith walk is the Holy Spirit illuminating today from what we just learned? And this is going to be available right in about an hour after we get done here on the website. But I want you to go home in your own personal devotion time. I want you to let, maybe maybe you can go back and listen to some of the things I talked about. But I'm more important than my voice or my teaching. I'm asking the Holy Spirit. Remember what we learned last week? That the, only the Spirit can teach you what the Scripture has to say. And with that, I want to just end with a word of prayer. Thank you, Father in heaven, for, again, the, this most amazing time to dive into this amazing story about the day Pentecost was fulfilled. Wow, the day you gave us, not just, you didn't just stop at giving us a Messiah. You, get, you went over the top, and you gave us the Holy Spirit. 
endowed us with power. The ability to even know what righteousness is comes from the Holy Spirit. We can tell, we can read, we can know. And preserving your word is so fantastically outlandish of you and a picture of your grace and mercy. So we don't want to belittle that. We don't want to underestimate what you can do through the power of your word. So we're going to make ourselves available. Wherever, wherever we're at, in our cars, at work, coffee break, lunch break, here in this room, we're going to make a commitment to avail ourselves to the Holy Spirit's work. Teach us, mold us, make us, break us if you have to. We're all yours. Our eyes are wide open. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.